0: Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns. Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2.
1: Just of glory the, Which the, where the,
0: the Transfiguration hymn, a wondrous typo vision fair. The Transfiguration stands, well, like at a mountaintop in the ministry of Jesus. It's a significant point recorded by all four gospel writers, and it has a bit of mystery surrounding it. There is Jesus, as the hymn says, glowing on the mountaintop as his disciples witness his transfiguration, but he's not alone. There are also Moses and Elijah. Why these three and why this momentary revelation of Christ's glory? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, Remembering the Transfiguration of Our Lord with Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Tom Baker joins us after that to teach a Sunday school lesson on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, and we'll discuss third-century martyr St. Valentine, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, will be our guest. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back. Why is Transfiguration located in the Epiphany season?
2: It's a Lutheran innovation. It's especially here in America. But what's very interesting is the Lutherans have kind of had their influence on the rest of the world, in the three-year lectionary because this is the standard Revised Common Lectionary place for it now, as the last Sunday of Epiphany season before they go into Lent and Ash Wednesday. Originally, it had its observation on the 6th of August and, for instance, Lutheran churches in Sweden still observe it there. The Roman Church also has a connection. They, in fact, don't follow the Revised Common Lectionary and they read the Transfiguration Gospel on the second Sunday in Lent, which is kind of unique. But our little tradition, which is present already, for instance, in the Lutheran hymnal, way back when the one-year lectionary was being used, most commonly, is to put Transfiguration as the last Sunday in Epiphany. And you asked the reason for it, and I think the reason, as the Revised Common Lectionary has recognized, is its kind of chief place as the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God, as divine, there present with his three disciples, on the mount of transfiguration we'll talk more about it when we get to the gospel reading and consider what peter says about it also but this is really the in many ways the revelation of his person as the son of man as the son of god as not only a human but a divine being as well there on the mountain of transfiguration at least that is until his resurrection so how would you describe the focus or the themes of this coming sunday yeah, we've mentioned this before when we were back at Christmas. There's a way in which when we get to the big events of Jesus' life that are commemorated in the church, it's not so much any particular text that governs this day of the church year, but it really is the day itself. It's the event, it's the significance of that event for us, uh, the the precursors to that event in the Old Testament as well, and all of the theological articles that go with it. We see this even in the three-year lectionary, the fine article on the three-year lectionary by Dr. Stuckwich in the Companion to the Services, that's now out from Lutheran Service Book from Concordia Publishing House, is really good. He makes one note as an example with Transfiguration saying that it's the same through all three years. What's interesting is, as we'll look at a little bit today, is the event is the same, that it's looking at the transfiguration, but by no means are the readings, the Psalms, the Old Testament epistle the same at all across the three-year lectionary. The only thing that's the same is the event. I think he's right in understanding that this still amounts to them being the same from year to year, because the focus of this is not even the particular gospel reading. But it is what happened to Jesus, and we're going to consider it from the perspective of the three distinct synoptic Gospels. So, for example, this year is perfect. You'll find a lot of similarity between transfiguration in the A, B, and C years. But this year is Matthew's year, so we're going to hear Matthew's account of it from Matthew 17. Maybe one other comment on that. It is difficult, I think, for Christians not to harmonize, that is, to take elements of all the Gospel accounts of this event and put them together. Um, uh, That is especially common, I think, and natural in the one-year lectionary where you're only maybe reading Matthew's account every year. But you would want to bring in, of course, what Luke has to say, if there's any little parts that are missing. We see quite a direct harmonization of the words of institution that we classically use always in the administration of the Lord's Supper. And of course, there is a way in which that can sometimes do violence to the particular Nature of the scriptures that they do bring out different aspects, so to speak, by highlighting from different sections. But in many ways, the pendulum has swung the other way at our time, that it's almost gotten to the point where we speak about the different writers of books of the Bible as if they were contrary to each other or disagreeing with one another or that they weren't in fact inspired by the same Holy Spirit. And that I think is detrimental to the faith and not honest to the way those writers even (laughs) express themselves. Today's uh, setting of the Transfiguration in year A really helps to make that point, I think, because we draw on the epistle from Second Peter, where Peter himself is remembering what happened, even though the Gospel that we'll hear shortly after that is not written by Peter, it's not written by Mark, who seems to have been Peter's worker there in Rome, but it's Matthew's Gospel. And yet, Peter is remembering the very same event that Matthew is recording, and that's, as Peter explains it clearly, because the Holy Spirit is the one who is directing this writing.
0: The intro for this coming Sunday is Psalm 99. How does it read?
2: Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord God is our God, is holy. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Maybe this reveals to us, I guess, another theme in particular this year, A, and that's, well, mountains. We're going to hear about mountains in almost every reading and every little proper here and there. In some ways, that might seem a little disingenuous. I always get worried when it looks too obvious, like somebody did a concordance search and picked their readings based on that. On the other hand, with this maybe as the only exception, I do think we'll see that the Old Testament and certainly the Epistle are well chosen, are absolutely applicable to the point of the Gospel reading as well. Here, what the disconnect, I suppose, is that the mountain being spoken of in Psalm 99 is Mount Zion. It's the Temple Mount, or I suppose you could say it another way, it's Mount Sinai. It's the place where the Lord was present with Moses. But here now we're adding another one to our mix. We're trying to say something similar is happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this psalm is all about the majesty of God, which produces awe and true fear of Him, not only in His own people, but also, as it mentions, appropriate to Epiphany season, to all the nations. He's the one that is unique in all the world, the one who all through the Old Testament is working for His people, is making a name for Himself, and only by extension, making a name for Israel because of their connection to Him. He's the one who makes them distinct. He is holy. But also, like some of the hymns that we have from other traditions, in a way this psalm is a little at odds with what we see going on on the Mount of Transfiguration. I guess in this perspective, Peter is the one who has the idea that we should be staying on the mountain, that this is the holy hill of the Lord, that we should set up our tabernacles and camp out forever. But actually, the the Word of God says, no, we need to move on. There's something more to come. But to hear it at the beginning of the service, I think, is still somewhat appropriate. And what is especially ought to be in focus as we're singing this and hearing it is to recognize who Jesus is. Because it's going to be abundantly clear here that he is the Son of God incarnate in human flesh. And we'll see the ramifications of that incarnation quite visibly. And yet we don't want that to overshadow or outshine The greater point is that his glory is revealed elsewhere, that we're not going to stay on this mountain, but we're not going to understand Christ fully unless we see him finally go to his cross. How does the collect read, and what would you highlight from it? O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you confirm the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshadowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in his glory, and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. So it mentions certainly the name of the day in it, which makes it nice and easy to remember what this is for. And it's focusing on a couple phrases that definitely come out of the Gospel reading. So we see this is not just mentioning Jesus by name, but it's calling him the Beloved Son, the very phrase the Father used. And it says that the mysteries of the faith are confirmed by the testimonies of Moses and Elijah. What mysteries are these? probably in particular, the incarnation of, of Christ, that this is the Son of God in human flesh. With that, maybe we also want to say this is not supposed to be told until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So there's something to be said about that as well. If we were in year C, I'd want to bring out Luke's comment. The point of discussion between Moses and Elijah and Christ is his exodus. But that's not year A, so we'll leave that for another time. Certainly, though, you have these two great prophets, or in a way, representatives of the whole Old Testament. Moses, he's the the law, the Torah, the five books, and the prophet Elijah can stand in for all of them. So you have the whole scriptures now testifying to Jesus Christ. With that though, now there's a new testimony and this is the the voice that comes from the cloud, the Father's own voice. And it says that it's a foreshadowing of our adoption by grace. That maybe needs a little explanation. First of all, we should recognize that the words, the voice from heaven has been heard already. That was way back at the baptism of Jesus. And at least the first half of what is said is, is exactly identical. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The extension then is that we are not only servants of Christ, but we are co-heirs with him. So it's essential to recognize that if we have now the right to call God Father, it's not simply because we're creatures. It's not simply because everybody in the whole world can call him Father directly, but rather it's because we are joined to his Son And so as a result, we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That's why we also get to call him our father. So all of this is there. And especially since these words were uttered also at Jesus' baptism, we should see the adoption of grace also connected with holy baptism with the result that we're co-heirs. We're, we're going to inherit something wonderful. We're going to inherit glorious bodies, just like Christ Jesus, which we have a glimpse of here. And we'll also be, co-heirs with the King in His glory. And that little complicated sentence is trying to express the fact that we will reign with Christ Jesus. We will live and reign just as He lives and reigns in eternal life. So not just co-heirs of the Father, but also co-regents with Christ Jesus in eternity. So it's a marvelous blessing, in fact, that he's not shunning us. He's not saying, you can't come and approach me on my mountain. But in fact, he's letting us into this glimpse of the vision, which still is not quite completed yet because he has not died and risen from the dead.
0: Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He's director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We'll get into the Old Testament reading in Exodus 24 next. Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns,
2: Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2. I'm Chaplain Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Congregations work hard to keep the Word of Christ dwelling richly in His disciples now and into eternal life. We work to help and support that effort. Learn more at LCMS.org/ worship. You'll find resources on the church here, Bible studies on the hymns of the day, audio helps for learning to sing our services, and look for worship planning resources to find the latest from LCMS Worship. That's LCMS.org/ worship. May the word of Christ dwell richly in you, spiritual and religious.
1: You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we
0: take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Tuesday, February the 14th, we're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, The Transfiguration of Our Lord, with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, what is the Old Testament reading for the
2: Transfiguration? The Old Testament for this day is Exodus chapter 24. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's the end of his covenant that was made there on Exodus on the mountain. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. We'll come back to that. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights." What is very interesting is our LCMS three-year lectionary includes everything I just read. The revised common lectionary on which it's based does not include the first verses, which in my opinion are absolutely the best connection with the gospel reading. So I'm really glad that our version has this. In particular, that the elders are together with Moses and Aaron, and they are eating in the presence of God. They are welcome with him. And they see him and they live. When we look at Exodus, we see the commandment from the Lord that no one can see me and live. And that's why this is an astounding moment that they are in the presence of God and yet they are not killed. It says the Lord does not lay his hand on them. Together with this, we also say they see his glory, and we have the cloud, which is described as also a devouring fire, and you see that it's fearful. This is the, the very tangible and visible manifestation of the Lord, which we've seen already, of course, as he brought them out of Israel with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So this is his presence. It's there in Mount Sinai. Uh, That's the place where he meets with his people first. Of course, that was foretold all the way back when Moses began fighting with Pharaoh. Uh, He said, we have to go out and worship our Lord on the mountain that he chose. And later, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we'll see that wherever the Ark of the Covenant goes, wherever the tabernacle is, finally settling both at Shiloh and then at the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, this is the presence of the Lord. And without that glorious cloud and its fire, it's to be wondered whether the Lord has in fact departed from us. So all of this then is a very unique moment that right after the blood of the covenant is sprinkled on the people, they are accepted and received into his presence that he does not kill them and that in fact he has fellowship with them. And Moses is there. So at first, again, we might think, well, this is just another mountain example in the Old Testament. Maybe this is a little better because it mentions Moses too, and he was there on the Transfiguration Mountain. But we should see that the real connection here is what we have right at the beginning, seeing the Lord in his glory and living. This does not happen all the time in the Old Testament even. And so that's exactly what James and John and Peter are privileged to see there on the Mount of Transfiguration.
0: The psalm for the transfiguration is
2: Psalm 2, beginning at verse 6. Read that for us. Psalm two, very important messianic psalm. It's interesting. It skips the beginning, which is focused on the rulers who are opposed to the Christ. This is the one that's quoted and included in the prayer in Acts chapter four by, by Peter and the apostles gathered there. The Lord, we know, has a sense of humor. Unfortunately, we're the butt of his joke here. He is holding his enemies in derision. And all that is skipped, which maybe is our aversion to mean things in the Bible. But maybe a better way to see it is that it could also just be a focus on the blessing. Remember, we're commenting in these psalms on what we've just heard in the Old Testament reading. And the emphasis there is not on the Lord's judgment, but just the opposite, on this unique event where His judgment does not burst out against the people. In fact, they're able to see Him and live, which does not happen often, apart from Christ Jesus, that is. Verse 6, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish on the way while his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So we see even this section has a rebuke finally the kings. Hey, pay attention. Now is the time to come to terms with your accuser, have to draw from something we heard from the Sermon on the Mount earlier. But the last phrase departs from that and returns to the blessing that comes from all those who trust in him. And at the beginning, or maybe at the center of this psalm, is the statement from the Lord saying to his Lord. So this is the Father speaking to the Son. You are my Son, I have begotten you.
0: We're looking forward to the transfiguration of our Lord according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. LCMS Worship has produced free resources for Lent, Holy Week, and Easter. You'll find them at lcms.org worship, lcms.org worship. We will get into 2 Peter 1, through 21, Peter's recollection of the transfiguration as the epistle next.
3: Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die.
0: Pastor Peter Bender talking about his presentation at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference at Concordia University, Chicago.
3: I'm going to die. Every one of us is going to die. At the time of death, the Christian faces so many assaults. We think about the death of loved ones that causes, at times, unspeakable grief. We can be assaulted by the regret over the things that we have failed to do. We wonder about the future, what will happen to loved ones. Where shall we for refuge go? To Christ, who is the resurrection
0: and the life. You can meet and hear Pastor Peter Bender making the case for a dying man's consolation Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. For more information, visit IssuesETC.org.
1: Your Aunt Mabel's church banners
0: are from the 60s. They were quite something in the day, especially the psychedelic bell-bottoms. But now the colors have faded, the tassels fell off years ago, and the hand-stitched letters are skew. Come on over to adcruesome.com and see our beautiful, theologically correct, Christ-focused church banners. We can customize size and color to meet your church's requirements visit adcrucem.com, that's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com.
3: Risen Savior Lutheran Church, Baser, Kansas, located just right outside the northwest corner of the metro Kansas City area. We have a growing congregation of people who come from over 13 different communities to see what God is doing here, who desire to only believe, teach, confess, and practice as a church always has risen savior baser kansas check out our website risen a mobile lutheran bible study you're listening to issues etc i like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things the love of christ and the needs of our neighbor
0: Issues, etc., a regular guest, Dr. James Buescher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to
3: be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another
0: and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, The Transfiguration of Our Lord with Pastor Sean Denzer. Sean, we come to the epistle in Second Peter where it's Peter's recollection of the transfiguration, but it's more than a recollection. It's really a sermon on the transfiguration. Read that for us if
2: you would. I love this so much. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. Oh this is so rich and I I love it in the scriptures when you see We get this in the New Testament in particular, although frankly, we see it in Daniel too. He is reading Jeremiah's scrolls and then he comes to his conclusion on uh, the 70 days, for example, of the exile in Babylonian captivity. We have something similar uh, also when Peter, at the end of this epistle, talks about Paul's writings and says, hey, some of the stuff might be a little confusing. The Lord blesses him in a unique way, but they're still the scriptures. Like all the rest of them, they're worth reading. And here, you've got to bring in John. You've got to bring it in First John, for example. You've got to bring in the beginning of the gospel, right? We have seen his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you've got to bring in all three synoptic gospel accounts of the transfiguration. And you see that Peter is recalling this for us. So here's yet another testimony to it. And Here he's focused especially on truth. We're not making this stuff up. We're not telling myths. This may sound like something out of the gods on Mount Olympus, uh, but this is different. We were eyewitnesses, a term that's so important for, for John in his gospel, but here we see Peter also uses it. He talks about the honor and glory that comes from God the Father, right? And he uh, talks about the voice that's born out of the majestic glory. That's his description of the glory cloud, just as we had in the Old Testament, now present there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, very important for us, we use this term majesty to speak about the kingship of God, to speak about his divine attributes and power, which exceed all of mankind, which are unique, of course, to God himself, the divine nature, we might even say. Uh, And he quotes then the phrase that we've heard many times before, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What's very interesting is It seems like Peter forgot kind of the best part. That's exactly what we have about the baptism of Jesus. But in the transfiguration, the father adds this phrase, listen to him. And Peter doesn't mention that, but actually he does because he goes on to talk about the holy scriptures. In fact, he says something that we're gonna look at here. I think in a little more detail too. We, I think he's including us here as well, because he goes on to say, which you do well to pay attention to, we have something even more sure than this. And that's the prophetic word. That's the thing that we should look to. That, in fact, is something that shines brightly and clearly to illuminate for us everything we need to know at least until we have it fully. I think that implies that the last day, when the morning star rises even among us, when the day, that's usually a reference to the end times, when the day at last dawns forever. And then he goes and talks a little bit about scripture, its inerrancy, its truthfulness, its inspiration, and we can talk about that too. There's a little bit of a translation question here and that's this phrase in verse 19, we have something more sure, the prophetic word. That's how my ESV puts it. It could also be translated, we have the prophetic word firmed up or made more sure. Quite literally it would just be, we have a more sure thing, the prophetic word. So it could kind of go either way that it's firmed up or that it is something more firm. I really think given the context here of what Peter's talking about, his extensive discussion on the nature of the scriptures here, connected with his interest in not talking about myths or stories, but in fact trying to point us to something more sure, that we should really take it the way the ESV has it here, that it is, we have something that's even more sure namely, or in opposition to that, the more sure thing is the prophetic word, is the holy scriptures. That might seem. Wrong, right? I mean, I think this is our natural inclination to say, I read the Bible, it's words on a page, they're from a long time ago, they're not even in the original language that they were written in. And that does not strike me as a a fantastic, enlightening experience of God. But Peter says we should not be dismayed by that. It is. In fact, it's more sure than what he experienced. As we will see when we get to the first-hand account, so to speak, even though it's the second-hand account by the Gospel writer, we will see that Peter's great moment on the mountain, if our experience of God is supposed to be the primal thing, how did it go with Peter? Not very well. In fact, almost as poorly as when he got something right just in the chapter before and almost immediately goofed it up. So Peter's going to be told to shut up. He's going to learn that lesson, I think. And now he's writing to us and saying, I'm not going to go and spout my words off. In fact, I'm going to point you back to the holy scriptures that are surely from God. And I want to just take a moment to make very clear. These are God's own words that you find in the scriptures. They're not mine. They're not John's. They're not James's or anybody else. They belong to the Lord. They're his words. Therefore, they're sure and certain.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the gradual. Again, this is a a seasonal thing for Epiphany.
2: Yeah, we've heard it a lot. Praise the Lord all nations. He's, his steadfast love is great toward us. His faithfulness is forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory Do his name. Maybe there's a good connection. We're talking a lot about the Lord's glory today. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Now, i got to say, the last part does not fit too well today because the point of this experience is certainly to draw our attention to all of the great mountains in the Old Testament. Yes, think of Mount Zion, the place where the Lord dwells in his temple. Think of Mount Sinai, the place where he first met with his people, Moses, like we heard in the Old Testament. But we should not think of the main focus being our offerings that we bring. Maybe this come into his courts part is quite good, but the reason that this is a wonderful thing is we're coming into his courts to receive from him. There's really a way in which all of the Old Testament sacrifices also ought to be understood not primarily as buttering up God or rendering a service to him, But in fact, in his means by which he meets with his people graciously, by which that scene with the sapphire throne and everything with the 70 elders is actually still present for the people of Israel, even as they're going through the midst of the wilderness. And maybe just the other point is, as we'll see at the end of today's gospel, we're not staying here. This may be a great glorious moment, Uh, it's a revelation of something that may not be obvious to the eyes, this divine nature of Christ Jesus, but we're not staying in the glorious experience. We're going to go back into some pretty rough stuff, in fact, after this in Matthew. And Christ, of course, is on his road already to the cross. He's already mentioned it once to us in the Gospel. So definitely we want to have the last word of the Father in our mind when we think of the Mount of Transfiguration, just as Peter did in his epistle so well. We ought to come away from that mountain saying, whatever else I think I know, I want to listen to this Jesus.
0: That brings us to the verse that you say it's Psalm 45, verse 2, that anticipates the word, listen to him.
2: Yeah, yeah. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, Grace is poured upon your lips, and this is understood prophetically as speaking about Christ Jesus. He's the most handsome, doesn't mean that he's the prettiest of all guys, but it means he is the greatest, he is the chiefest. He is, if you'd like to sing Beautiful Savior, today's probably the day to do it. And sons of men here is quite remarkable, right? Of course, because this is a term for. God himself, the son of man, the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. Here, it's maybe trying to make the point that he is shining brighter and more famously than any other man has ever done. But what's put together with that is what is especially handsome about Christ Jesus is the grace that is upon his lips. Why would we listen to Christ Jesus? Well, as John says, he is full of grace and truth. He is the one who is bringing the good news to His people. He is the Messiah who is coming to redeem them, to show forth His righteousness, not to destroy us, but in fact to redeem us. That's why it's not a fearful thing, but finally a blessed thing to be told to listen to Jesus Christ, to pay good attention to Him, because He's a light that brings us to uh, eternal day. We will get into the gospel for the transfiguration of our Lord in Matthew 17
0: as we look forward to Sunday morning with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, next. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. issuesetc.org slash 2023
1: nominations. What is mental health? The February issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up this question of mental health with contributions from the LCMS Task Force on Mental Health, which is tasked with providing resources for Lutheran church workers to better care for their own mental health and those entrusted to their care. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
3: Christological. Creedal confessional. You're listening to Issues
1: Etc. Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Look for more information in early 2023 at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life Equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us.
3: Lutheran Music.
2: Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org.
0: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to the transfiguration of our Lord according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. Sean, we come now to the Gospel Matthew's account of the transfiguration in Matthew 17, the first nine verses. Take us into it.
2: After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, look, it's good, Lord, that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the gospel of our Lord. The context is helpful here. The momentous chapter before has Jesus asking his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? Peter is the only one who gives like the truth. Everyone else is like, well, you know, some people say this and that. Peter says, here's who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gets a gold star. Flesh and blood have not revealed this. This is the father's own truth that Peter has now confessed. And it's almost as if the Lord takes a cue from Peter, as as strange as that would sound, right? And says, great, now we're gonna get to the real point now that you're paying attention. The son of man has to suffer and to die and the third day to rise again. And Peter then shows that he did not get it because Peter says, he rebukes the Lord, says you can't do that, you're not to die. And this is that great moment when the Lord says, get behind me, Satan. You're on the wrong side. You're not on the side of God at all. You're thinking like just a man. And then we have what's often labeled in our Bibles as the cost of discipleship. I just think we should know the words of Jesus. If anyone would follow or come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. The one who loses his life, though, for my sake, will... Save it for eternal life. And then he mentions some won't even taste death before they see the Lord in his glory, which is the setup then for six days later, the transfiguration. When they come down the mountain also, they come down to a faithless generation that Elijah was not heard. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord is frustrated by all of the sin and death and its effects in the world that he sees. And then pretty soon he starts predicting his passion some more. So just very instructive to see particularly Peter's best and m- worst moments all altogether there right before this. And I think then that helps us to see him having a similar struggle still on this Mount of Transfiguration. Why would he say it's bad for the Lord to suffer and die? Probably because he thinks if he's the Son of God, if he's the Christ, and the Son of the living God, then this is the sort of thing we ought to expect. Let's set up shop in the temple. Let's sit on the great thrones. Let's have the Lord shining in all his glory and his power. Something more like we had in our intro at Psalm. Holy is he, right? Everybody should be cringing and trembling. But instead, he's rebuked, and the Lord is focused on something else. Listen to him. And the Lord says, this doesn't need to be talked about until something much more important has happened. The death of and the resurrection that I told you about, Peter. So I think that's all very instructive. Let's look at the text a little more. So the divinity of Christ is on display here. That's that's what this transfigured means, is that his appearance was changed. Trans is, is a change and figure. So it's, it's what he looks like, right? So we get to see this brightness. We get to see the shining. He is shining like the sun, which is to say, The light is not reflecting off the sun. He's not being illuminated by some other light. He is now emitting light. This is important for what we had mentioned before in Peter's epistle, that the scriptures are described in the same way. Not that they are pleasant to look at if you shine some light of reason or other explanation on them, but that they themselves are the lamp that lights the way and shows the path, that they illuminate us who in fact are in darkness. So the same thing ought to be recognized here with Christ Jesus, and yet Peter dares, unfortunately, to open his mouth. And when he does, I I think it's interesting, the word for tent is the very same word for tabernacle here, and it's almost as if, or could be at least, that uh, he's going to make three tents for you and for Moses and for Elijah, as if now we've got almost three gods, three temples, I'm not sure if Peter knew what he was saying. In fact, that's what Luke says. He didn't know what he was saying. Um, We see from our text that he's interrupted by the Father. What's very interesting to, to see about Jesus' divinity showing here is we confess, and Lutherans like to speak of it in kind of two stages, so to speak, of Christ's ministry, his humiliation and his exaltation. That doesn't necessarily come from the Bible, those terms, but it's the recognition that he does not always or fully use his divine powers and attributes as a man. So, yes, Jesus is at all times fully God and fully man. He's not adopted by the Father slowly over time, nor does he uh, develop his powers in that sense as we might grow stronger, as even we see Jesus learning and growing and waxing strong in spirit, but he is always, even from the moment he was born, been the the Son of God, the very same one who created the world together with his Father. And yet, he's not always showing it. He, He walks from place to place, he gets tired, he cries, he suffers the same difficulties that we do, But not today, today he's letting it all show. Today they get a glimpse of him as he truly is, if only they could see it like that all the time. And they won't get another glimpse of this until he is in his state of exaltation, that is when he descends into hell and rises again. He is always now using his divine powers as a man, right? So we see that that his human body is is not bothered by locked doors or closed walls. He is there in the midst of them. He's, you know, Emmaus one moment and he's all the way back in Jerusalem at the next. And of course, I mean, that's how he's able to be present and and according to his promises and will in the Lord's Supper. There is something also beautiful that many have recognized. Peter is cut off. He's told to shut up in so many words. He's told, instead of talking, why don't you listen to this son of mine? We can see in verse 6 they're, they're terrified. They're probably also simply terrified by the sight of the Father in this glorious cloud. It's the exact same reaction we see in Exodus 20 when the Lord is speaking from the mountain. It's a fearful thing, the children of Israel say, to hear the Lord speaking. They, they'd love to have Moses talk more. But the Father needs to stop, especially if he's going to talk about the Ten Commandments and this perfection that we are not keeping. But Jesus comes and removes this fear, right? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it is a good thing. Because having fear of the Lord means that then when he takes that fear away, when he says, rise and do not be afraid, then what in the world else would we fear, right? And when they lift up their eyes, they don't see anything else. They just see Jesus. I suppose that's to say the vision's over. It's back to the way his state of humiliation as was before. But I think the point that the gospel writer's making here is, no, they saw Christ Jesus only, and they recognized that was sufficient, that that should be our focus. As the writer to the Hebrews says, come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's got it from start to finish. Who, not surprising, for the joy set before him, goes on to endure the cross. And that's the very next part, right? Don't tell anybody about this. I don't want them to be attracted to this miraculous event and believe in me some through that. In the same way, I don't want them to just chase after me for the bread or follow me for the healings. But I want them to know me in my cross. That could be through their sufferings that I, in fact, will be their promise and their trust, but especially that they would know me in my atoning death for them and in my resurrection for their justification. So that's why we're not staying here. That's why we're not establishing a new temple on earth. No, he is going to be worshipped in spirit and truth, and the chief truth is his death and his resurrection for us. So
0: this transfiguration is often treated as a revelation of the glory that we will one day share with Christ. Talk about that aspect
2: of this. I think it's St. Paul who talks about this, that uh, the perishable will put on the imperishable, that we'll have a spiritual body, which at first glance seems like it's a contradiction in terms. But couple that also with the way that John talks in his epistle when he says, What we will be, we don't quite know, right? But when we see him, we will know because we will be like him. And all of this then comes together to say when we see the resurrected body of Christ Jesus, when we see it with powers beyond our weak, mortal human bodies, that this is, in fact, what we should look forward to. Paul says the same thing in Thessalonians when he says, we'll all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, right? We'll be raised to incorruptibility forever. We have a glimpse of that now. Some people have drawn the two mountain peaks, this one, and maybe to the resurrection kind of in terms of high points, that the next time we see Jesus in such a state is after his death is over and his resurrection is forever, that he is dying christ dies to sin once for all but now he has risen never to die again
0: i wanted you to return to the statement that you made before from the epistle that while peter omits those words listen to him in effect he does instruct us to listen to christ why well, do we follow the father's command made at transfiguration and listen to christ today
2: we give our attention to the words of the holy scriptures to the prophets and the apostles to the Bible, because this is not a man's own interpretation. This is not the kind of uh, Peter didn't know what he was saying. He's babbling and needs somebody to cut him off there on the mountain. This is the Lord's own word. So Jesus makes this clear, I think, in John's gospel as well, when he talks about the Holy Spirit will bring to mind all the things that I've said to you so that you can pass on what is mine that I give to you. Or Paul says the same thing when he says, you know, the apostles and the prophets are like the foundation, but the thing that ties them together, the thing that orients them is Christ Jesus. That's where they're supposed to be pointing. So yeah, if you want to listen to the words of Jesus, listen to the Holy Scriptures. Come and hear the words of grace that are poured out from the lips of your pastor and believe what Luke says about him, right? What Jesus says in Luke's gospel, that is, he who hears them, they're not hearing that pastor. They're hearing me, and if they're hearing me, they're hearing this Father who sent me, who also said, "Listen to me."
0: Finally, with a minute, what would you say about the hymn of the day, "Wondrous Type"?
2: Well, "Wondrous Type Vision Fair" is—it's just a classic hymn. This is out of England from the Middle Ages, and like most days of the church year that focus on an event of Christ, this one kind of just tells the story. And it says that we're cheered by this. We're cheered by the mystery of this. We know that we're going to sing these praises forever when we see the Lord face to face. Maybe with it, we should mention that in the three-year lectionary, this is probably the day that somebody might sing 417 in our hymnal, Alleluia, Song of Gladness, or Psalm 137, or some other mention of giving up are allelujahs. we set those aside for a time in the season of lent whereas those who are using the one-year lectionary did that already about 70 days before easter pastor john Denzer
0: is director of worship for the lutheran church missouri synod sean thanks my pleasure here is a reflection from yaroslav vaida who was an lcms pastor and author of the hymn now the silence and many others about worship. No matter the culture, the background, the taste, worship should begin with reverence. Do I realize that I'm about to do in worshiping the one eternal divine being? Am I conscious of my creatureliness, my indebtedness to God, my need for communication with my creator, redeemer and sanctifier? That would exceed my anticipation of meeting a celebrity or a powerful official or someone I admire among my fellow creatures. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February. Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2. You can browse before you buy at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Tom Baker joins us next to teach a Sunday School lesson on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. Then Dr. Bill Weinrook will help us remember 3rd Century Martyr St. Valentine.
3: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.
2: The grace of God, the Church's music, the Lord's Supper every service every Sunday, preaching Christ crucified and risen, our hope for years to come, there is hope in St. Louis, Hope Lutheran Church that is. 5218 Neosha Street, St. Louis, Missouri. Find us on the web at hopelutheranstl.org.
1: I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His
0: ways.
3: In the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics on Holy Scripture, I seek to expound and defend the doctrine of Holy Scripture in three areas.
0: Dr. Jack Kilcrease talking about his new book in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series, Holy Scripture.
3: One, the absolute truthfulness of Holy Scripture. Two, the Christ-centered nature of Holy Scripture. And three, to expound and defend the doctrine of Holy Scripture in a
0: postmodern environment. Learn more about Holy Scripture at lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com.
3: Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713 855-2681. Eight five five twenty six eighty one.